0: Good evening. This podcast goes with Nursing 676 presentation, PowerPoint presentation, Malpresentations in Labor. Slide number two. So, this is a bit of a review for you all. We've had this content before, but it's content that is just worth memorizing because it all helps us understand how important fetal position is. And the different ways that fetuses can get themselves into some sticky positions. So lie is the relationship between the long axis of the fetal ovoid to the long axis of the uterine ovoid. So think of the fetus all curled up as an oval and the uterus is an oval. So what's the relationship of those two? So if it's longitudinal It means that the fetus ovoid is in the same um, relationship to the uterus, so it's in a longitudinal lie or up and down. Um, doesn't say whether it's head up or head down. It just says that it's lying in a longitudinal fashion. Then transverse lie is going exactly perpendicular to that. So it's going from side to side. And obviously then that fetal ovoid doesn't really match the uterine ovoid, but that's transverse lie. And then an oblique lie is when it's somewhat diagonal. So these fetuses often are almost longitudinal, but not quite with the fetal head or the fetal butt kind of on the side by one of the mother's hips. Slide three, then presentation. And the presentation is that part of the fetus that lies over the pelvic inlet and occupies the lower poles of the uterus. So your three options with this are vertex or breach or shoulder. So if it's vertex or breach, then it's longitudinal lie. If it's shoulder, then it's either transverse, most likely a transverse lie, as you can see in the picture, or it could be more of a longitudinal lie if it's more just the shoulders kind of hinting at being the presenting part. Slide number four. Then moving on to the presenting part. So this is different than presentation. So presenting part is the most dependent part of the fetus. So in a vertex presentation, it depends on the degree of flexion of the vertex. So if the vertex is completely flexed, it will be what? It'll be cephalic or if you're in the UK, cephalic. Brow or military is when it's deflexed and in face it is completely deflexed. So we're gonna go through that in a little bit more detail, but that's presenting part. And then remember attitude is the relationship of fetal parts to each other. So it's flexion or extension. So when we talk about a face presentation, that's when the fetal vertex is completely extended. So why is this so important? And it's because of the diameters of the fetal skull really so if you have a fetus and remember that these um, diameters are in centimeters they're also averages so obviously every fetus isn't going to have a suboccipital brigmatic diameter of 9.4 but this is to give you that idea of kind of what the averages are and then, why it's so important. So, if the presenting part is vertex occiput anterior, then the attitude is going to be complete flexion. And then, the presenting part, the diameter, the anterior posterior diameter, will be 9.4 centimeters. And in a minute, I'll show you a picture of this so you can get a visual. But for right now, just think of, you know, maybe um, if you have your little baby doll from your exam, if it moves its head, think about that. It's a complete flexion and look at that diameter. So um, suboccipital means kind of at the nape of the neck to pragmatic is the forehead. So tucking the head in so that the occiput comes first, that's going to be the diameter that the largest diameter. If you have incomplete flexion, then it could be vertex occi- occipital posterior. So occipital posterior babies are not incomplete flexion. It's incomplete flexion and they have the occipital frontal and that's 10.5 centimeters. If the head is deflexed, in a military position, then it's going to be, um, occipital frontal. So think of the back of the head to the front of the head and think about how much wider that is, that's 11 centimeters. But then if it's brow presentation or an extension, so think about the forehead coming first, then think about it as verticomental. So, I'm going to show you a picture of that in a minute, but kind of tip your head back or tip your baby's head back and think about it kind of going closer to the chin. So, like back of the head to the chin. And that's the widest diameter. Then, if you can get your head all the way back so that your face is presenting first or your baby's face is presenting first, then it's submento, so underneath the chin to the forehead. And that's complete extension and that's face presentation and look at that you're back to the 9.4 centimeters that's why as weird as it sounds a face presentation can actually birth vaginally more easily than a brow or a military position all right slide number seven here you go you can kind of see these now and um, I realize that the babies all head up so Um, but then if I tip it upside down, then the numbers are upside down. So, um, in your complete flexion, this one says 9.5. Like I said, it's not an exact science. And if you measured a hundred different babies, you would get a different mean head size probably than even this. Then if you've got a baby in a a military or deflexed position, then it's 12.5. If you've got a brow presentation, then you're at 13.5. And then if you've got complete extension, then you've got 9.5 centimeters. All right, slide number eight um, the frequency. So, fetuses are longitudinal 99.5% of the time. So, n- only one in, two hon- 1 in 200 for full term fetuses will not be longitudinal so most full-term babies are not going to be in a transverse because they just don't fit as well that way um, of those 95 to 96 percent are vertex face presentation happens about half of a percent of the time and then is three percent and shoulder is 0.5 percent so shoulder being the transverse or oblique <coughs> excuse me All right, Um, slide number nine. So over 95% of fetuses are cephalic presentation at term. So that's the good news. Um, The occiput can be anterior, transverse, or posterior. Most fetuses enter the maternal pelvis in an occiput transverse position With with the descent. Then the occiput rotates either anterior or posterior or it can um, actually, if the baby stays high, then it'll rotate with the maternal expulsive efforts. 15 to 20% of fetuses will be occiput posterior before labor. Most rotate intrapartally and only 5% incidence at birth of occiput posterior babies. So um, while a lot of you have already had one, it's really not that common. So, just a reminder kind of of what the fetal head or the passenger looks like, and where the occipital bone is, and what the diameters are of the fetal head, and which bones are which, etc., etc. That's slide number 10. Moving on to slide number 11, um, just a little refresher of what asyncletism is. So, um, that often babies will not come through directly synclitic to the maternal pelvis and that some asyncletism, especially if they're descending is really normal. And so, um, especially anterior asyncletism and the way, what helps me remember anterior asyncletism is the sagittal suture lies closer to the sacral promontory. But if you were to feel an ear, you would feel the anterior ear in anterior asynclitism. So think about if you were doing a vaginal examination, um, look at how much further the posterior ear is from you when the baby is asynclitic anteriorly versus posterior asynclitism, you would reach the posterior ear before you would reach the anterior ear. So that's kind of my weird way of remembering it um, because otherwise it seemed sort of opposite to me. But, um, so these fetuses, certainly you've got a lot to think about because you've got not only to think about um, are they occiput anterior, occiput posterior, um, is the head completely flexed and then is there some Um Slide number 12. So again, thinking about the flexion, that there are four degrees of head flexion. And so it can be poor, it can be moderate, advanced and complete. And honestly, it really doesn't matter when the head is high. Babies can be a little bit more deflexed, but you see as they move into the pelvis, they really do need to be flexed. So if you look at the solid line on this picture, the solid line is the occipital mental diameter. So that's the diameter you want going straight down versus when the head is deflexed, it's not, it's a wider diameter. So you see why the fetus isn't gonna fit unless it completely flexes. So number 13, cephalopelvic disproportionment, or what was very commonly known as CPD. And we've talked about this already, that um, it was previously seen as a disproportion in the size of the fetus relative to the mother But now in contemporary practice, we really know that often this has more to do with a malposition or a malpresentation rather than necessarily that the pelvis is contracted. Um, So in contemporary practice, it's not gonna be diagnosed ahead of time, but it will be more based on a protracted labor or a rest of labor during the active phase. Remember that you cannot diagnose a rest of labor during latent phase of labor or then of descent, particularly if a baby gets stuck in a persistent transverse position. So a malposition would be an extended head, an asyncletic fetal head, or a malpresentation would be that it's a mentum, uh, that it's occiput posterior, or a brow presentation. So number 14. Um, There are some maternal factors that can contribute to a malpresentation and that would be a contracted pelvis, a pendulous maternal abdomen. So sometimes if you have somebody who's a grand multip, that um, uterus is not really supported as well by the abdominal muscles. And so it's not staying in alignment with the fetal hips and the pelvis and what can be really helpful in this circumstance is something like that um, rebozo, the, that sort of thing, lifting up the, lifting up the uterus as the um, contractions occur. So neoplasms, fibroids, ovarian cysts, things that maybe displace the uterus somewhat, um, uterine abnormalities, a bicornate uterus, um, an abnormal placental size or location, so a placenta previa, or if it's a bicornate uterus um, and it's in a corneal implantation, um, grand multiparity or um, pre-labor rupture of membranes can sometimes um, create a malpresentation. So thinking about iatrogenically if the membranes are ruptured really early in labor before adequate contractions have brought that fetal head down, then you can actually cause malpresentation. Slide number 15. So some fetal factors, a large infant, um, think about it as these babies are really trying their best um, to fit through. So um, sometimes when they're a little on the big side, they're going to end up in a position that's not ideal as they try to fit. So polarity errors if the fetus is breech Or if it's transverse lie, then it's going to be a malpresentation, kind of obvious. Um, Abnormal internal rotation, so the fetus rotates to occiput posterior versus anterior. Um, The attitude of the fetus, so if it's extension instead of flexion or it's deflexed. Multiple pregnancies can cause malpresentations. Anomalies of the fetus, so unlikely in um, modern... Um, obstetrics here in the U.S. that you wouldn't know if a fetus had hydrocephalus or anencephaly, but those can be reasons for malpresentations, polyhydramnios, because um, there's so much fluid the fetus can be floating around in, especially when the membranes rupture, then it can come down in in a weird position, or prematurity, sometimes if they're so small, they can be in a malpresentation, they can also sometimes fit that way as well. Uh, Slide number 16. So how are we going to know? So think about your clues. Um, When the presenting part remains high, sometimes that can be a clue of a malpresentation. If the descent is slower than normal, um, I think I've talked to you about some grand tips where that fetus stays really, really, really high no matter what you do and um, Eventually, the you know, the baby births, but it's in an occiput-posterior position. Um, poor or incomplete application of the presenting part on the cervix. Um, ballooning of the four waters can be a clue. So I had a case where this patient, I think it was her fifth or sixth baby, came in in active labor, um, went to check her. The whole vagina was full of this ballooning bag of waters which of course broke as I was checking her she was six and there was just a back Um, so it was you know it was a shoulder presentation um, and for that really at that point nothing could be done but a cesarean birth so that one, I really remember that ballooning bag of of water into the vagina the shape of the abdomen um, does it look kind of off? Could it be an oblique? Does it look more like uh, an oval, a transverse oval? Oval, that could be a clue. Um, what's happening with the contraction pattern? Is there, um, Sometimes the contractions will really space out when it's a malposition. Um, is the cervical change slow? Are they complaining of back labor? And where are you auscultating the fetal heart? That can also be a clue. Remember with occiput posterior fetuses, you're not going to hear over the fetal back like you do with an occiput anterior fetus. So you're going to hear over the chest. It's going to be trickier to hear and you're going to hear kind of in the middle of the abdomen or you're going to hear way over by the hip bones. Slide number 17. So persistent posterior Again, the incident, uh, 15 to 20% of term fetuses are occiput posterior prior to labor, but most are going to rotate during the intrapartum period. So the incidence at birth is about 5%. And what happens is because the head is poorly flexed, the anterior part reaches the pelvic first and it causes the fetus to rotate to occiput posterior. And mid-pelvis arrest occur if the baby rotates because of the encroaching ischial spines. Remember that from your pelvimetry, Slide number 18. Um, some of the risk factors for a fetus being an occiput posterior um, nulliparity, maternal age greater than 35, obesity, black race, previous occiput posterior birth, Um, I've talked to patients who all of their babies have been occiput posterior. Uh, Decreased pelvic outlet capacity. So these fetuses are trying to figure out every which way to come through. Uh, Gestational age greater than 41 weeks. um, Birth weight greater than 4,000 grams. Prolonged first or second stage of labor. The last one is a little bit of a which came first because... As I was saying, when you have a malposition, then you're gonna have prolonged first or second stage of labor. So honestly, that's more that that's what occurs because of a fetus being occiput posterior. I don't necessarily think that a prolonged first or second stage of labor is going to cause a fetus to be occiput posterior. Slide number 19. So here are the consequences. Again, prolonged first and second stage of labor. And because of that, there's more likelihood of undergoing interventions. So um, again, it's a little bit tricky because like we said, if you um, break the bag of waters too early, that actually increases the risk of occiput posterior. But at the same time, fetuses that are occiput posterior are more likely to undergo interventions like amniotomy, oxytocin, oxytocin augmentation, episiotomies operative delivery severe perineal lacerations increased blood loss and postpartum infection so again thinking about remember our cascade of things that can occur so it's not to say necessarily that because a fetus is occiput posterior it makes um it makes it causes an infection but you think about they're more likely to undergo amniotomy They're more likely to have a longer first and second stage of labor. They're more likely to have a more severe perineal laceration. All of those things then contribute to an increase in postpartum infection. So slide number 20. Um, And then for the neonate, there is significantly lower one-minute APGAR scores for occiput posterior fetuses. And there's a positive association between occiput posterior babies who are born occiput posterior and umbilical artery acidemia, meconium stained fluid, neonatal intensive care units, and birth trauma. Um, What's interesting is it's associated with less shoulder dystocia than other cephalic positions. However, in event of shoulder dystocia, there's a higher rate of brachial plexus injury. So that's just an interesting little fact, although I have to tell you all, one of the absolute worst shoulder dystocias I ever had was in a fetus that was occiput posterior, and increased length of stay. So again, cascade of things: right, longer labor, um, more interventions, longer second stage, lower one-minute Apgar score, etc., um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Uh, slide twenty-one. Here's the challenge: is what's the relationship between occiput posterior and epidural analgesia. Um, What we do know for a fact is epidural analgesia is more likely to be in place when the position at birth is occiput posterior than when it is occiput anterior. So theoretically, it could be possible that the pelvic musculature relaxation associated with epidural leads to malpositioning of the fetal head which then promotes fetal rotation to occiput posterior however um, or it potentially inhibits rotation from occiput posterior but thinking about this when you have back labor when you have think about all those things that increase with occiput posterior so you've got a longer first stage you you know that there's risk of back labor. To me, those are patients who are much more likely to decide on an epidural, even if their initial birth plan was not to have an epidural. So the take home message remains the same that um, prior to epidural, encouraging movement positions changes, and if the patient opts for an epidural, then continuing to encourage movement and position changes to decrease the risk should there be a fetus that then stays in the occiput posterior. Um, So that's the take-home message. Slide 22, the big question, how do you know if a fetus is occiput posterior? And I'm not going to lie to you, it's tricky when you think about doing a vaginal exam. First of all, they're uncomfortable unless somebody has a um a very heavy epidural you know or, or an adequate epidural it's uncomfortable for the patient you're worried that you're going to still have your fingers in there when they get their next contraction the optimal position for you getting the information you need is to have them flat on their back with their knees and you know knees up and feet near their hips which is not a comfortable position by any means. So you're trying to be as quick as you can and you're trying to get the information and you really want to know what their cervix is and you want to know, do you feel ahead? You want to know, um, you know, station. So to then think about, okay, now I've got to try to figure out what position this fetus is in. Um, We don't expect at this point that your experts, and I think most of us would say, we're not always experts as well. Um, as you do more vaginal exams, you're going to start to get a feel and I can't describe exactly what it feels like except to say that when when a fetal head is occiput posterior, you're going to feel like there's a lot of room behind the fetus. That's it's That is just something that a lot of us have talked about. So yes, You're feeling for the sutures, you're feeling for the fontanelles, but you're also thinking this feels a little different. Um, And also remember things like the abdominal exam um, as well as your vaginal exam. And then a lot of fetuses are actually diagnosed in hindsight. So let's go through this kind of one at a time, starting with slide number 23 and the abdominal exam. So again, you're going to have more of a ski slope sort of abdominal exam where there's that dip. So think about where the fetus is and you're going to have a lot of knees and things up toward the top. But then really all you have is chest versus the back that's rounded. So you're going to see more of a dip. So that's one little clue that, um, and then thinking about again, where you're hearing the hard tones can also be a clue. And then slide number 24, um, picture that this is somebody you're doing their vaginal exam and you're going to feel that anterior fontanelle anteriorly. And again, it's tricky when there's molding and everything, but remember that the anterior fontanelle is like a diamond shape versus the posterior fontanelle which is a triangle shape. So, um, and some, you know, providers, especially physicians, will reach all the way in to feel like the fetal ears. And of course, yes, if you're going to do that, you're going to be able to tell because you're going to be able to tell which way the ear is going. But you have to reach up a really long way to find an ear. Slide number 25, Um, ultrasound, but what's interesting, you know, we think of that as definitive and they were unable to tell or incorrect about 10 to 13% of the time. So yes, sometimes you put the um, transducer right there and you just see those little eye sockets just staring right back at you and that's pretty good indication that the fetus is occiput posterior. And next semester at the start of integration, we'll have somebody come and talk more about um, diagnosing and, um, and internal rotation, but not right now. Slide number 26. So there's two things that a fetus can do that's born vaginally and is occiput posterior. So in your cardinal movements, the fetus can do either the long arc or they can do the short arc. So if they do the long arc, they're actually going 135 degrees. And if they're doing the short arc, then they do 45 degrees. So we're going to talk about this in a little bit more detail, but um, that's the long arc and the short arc. And um, if rotation doesn't occur for either the long arc or the short arc, then it's going to be either direct occiput posterior or it's going to be a transverse arrest. Slide number 27. So here are the mechanisms of labor for the long arc rotation or 135 degrees. Draw yourself little diagrams, um, kind of remember your geometry, but a fetus goes from right occiput, so we're starting off right occiput posterior. You could do this in the left occiput posterior But kind of like more babies are left occiput anterior, more are in the right occiput posterior. So it starts off right occiput posterior and then moves to a right occiput transverse. Then it moves to the right occiput anterior and births occiput anterior. But after it births, then it restitutes all the way back again so these babies essentially twist themselves around 135 degrees and then those are the babies you see as that head bursts you'll see them the head spin all the way around until it's right back at the right occiput posterior so it's kind of fascinating to watch um and I've seen this more in, again, more like the tips that those babies will take the long arc rotation. So they actually think, oh, you think, oh, I was wrong. This baby wasn't occiput posterior at all. It was anterior until you see that head spin around and then you know that, oh, actually that baby is completely twisted up in there and it's still, um, it, it's still, the body is still occiput posterior well not occiput posterior but the body is still so I don't have a really good picture of that but if you can kind of um, imagine it in your head. Slide number 28. So with the short arc these babies are the ones that are born directly OP. So they're say right occiput posterior they take the short arc so they move their head to a complete occiput posterior and then they restitute to right occiput posterior. So they only have to move their little heads 45 degrees. But again, um, either way, they can end up in a deep transverse arrest if they don't go one way or the other. Slide number 29. So management, and I know I've mentioned this, um, antepartum, often people suggest exercises to facilitate occiput anterior. I am not a proponent of that um, exercises before somebody's in labor um, there was a large multi-center randomized controlled trial so this was this was large you know over 2,500 participants and they did two groups one did um, daily walk so that was the control group and the other one did hands and knees with slow pelvic rocking for 10 minutes twice a day until labor so those are the two groups um incidence of persistent occiput posterior at birth or before or before instrumental rotation was eight percent so theirs was a little higher than that five percent that we um cited earlier so you see what happens you know obviously different population different statistics but um so that's interesting so you know it didn't show that it made any difference, but we do know that intrapartum um, positioning, acupressure potentially, and then sterile water palpules for back pain. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Slide number 30. So sterile water injections. Um, What is really interesting is we don't know exactly how this works. I asked uh, my chiropractor one time and he said, well, Maybe it's like fatiguing those nerve nerve endings with that noxious stimuli of the sterile water. Um, But they do relieve the severe back pain for roughly an hour. Um, It stings like a bee sting for about a minute, a minute and a half. And so it's a tiny amount of pure sterile water. Although I have read that normal saline does the same thing, which is fascinating because it's not hypotonic like sterile water is. So it's injected just under the skin at four locations on the lower back. Um, If any of you have had nursing jobs where you've had to do a TB test, this is, you want a little wheel just like a TB test would be. If you don't get the wheel, it means that you've not injected superficially enough. So, So slide number 31, you kind of see where these different points are. It does not need to be exact, but sometimes people have kind of those little dimples. Um, I don't know what it's called. Somebody's rhomboid, but those four little places. So a little bit closer together at the, um, at the lower ones and a little bit further apart at the top ones. Um, Slide number 32. Some of the advantages. um, There's a really short lag time. You ask, you know, you ask them, you tell them about it, they say yes, they want it, and you can do it pretty much right away. They get that, you know, stinging at first, and then um, and then they're going to get the relief. Um, it does provide significant relief, and it doesn't have any effect on the state of consciousness. It can be repeated. I will say that it, for me, it's never worked as well the second time. It doesn't limit the ability to move around. It doesn't interfere with labor progress or ability to push. it can be administered by a nurse or a midwife, and it doesn't require an anesthesiologist, obviously it's a very cheap intervention. Um, the one drawback, and you can you can follow it with an epidural. There is nothing that's going to preclude an epidural or nitrous or anything like that. The drawback would be that the stinging sensation when given I've had patients say, yeah, it worked, but I don't want to do it again. Other patients have wanted me to do it again. Um, Slide number 33. So you're going to fill those small TB syringes with sterile water. And again, I learned not normal saline, but I have read that normal saline seems to work. Um, Identify the posterior superior iliac spines and mark them with a pen. I don't mark them with a pen approximately three to four centimeters down and one to two centimeters in two more points and mark those and you can do honestly doing it during contraction um works you don't have to but that's kind of a distracting thing um inject a small amount here it says 0.1 milliliters I honestly do more like 0.25 in each area and do it fast so what works great is if you have a nurse or if you're with a midwife and you and the midwife do it and you both do two, one on each side, the faster you do it, the better, because they're not going to want a third or a fourth if you're slow on the first and the second one, because it does sting. Um, slide number 34, just another picture of where you would do it. And again, it does not need to be exact. Um Slide number 35. What position do you encourage for occiput posterior? So, hands and knees, the evidence is lacking, um, but it does anecdotally seem to work. And it does help the back pain, and it's a great position for a support person or a doula to be able to do some counter pressure on the lower back. Um, Sims position on the same side as the fetal spine. So, the rec- this recommendation, theories based on buoyancy and gravity and the force of the uterine contractions and studies do seem to support this that patients had more vaginal births with the fetus rotated to occiput anterior position and fewer cesareans and shorter labors. So, again, Sims' position, and we practice this in labor in our, um, in our labor support workshop on the same side as the side you think the fetal spine is on. Again, honestly, I would say try different positions and um, kind of see. Honestly, sometimes the position that the patient is the most uncomfortable in, if you can encourage them to stay in that position through a few contractions, that seems to work. But again, that's just me talking and I don't know if there's anything really um, super scientific about that. Slide number 36, there's just kind of some pictures. We've practiced this in class. Um, pillows are your friend as a midwife, absolutely. So, um, getting the patient almost on, as close as you can get them onto their stomach, kind of hanging over the edge as Deb Riesel had you practice. Slide number 37, um, just expectant management with reassuring fetal heart rate and favorable clinical pelvimetry, and if they're continue, continuing to progress, um, so multiparous women with persistent occiput posterior are more likely to achieve achieve spontaneous vaginal birth. Not a big surprise, um, and the management of a definite arrest of rate of descent is less clear. There's really no randomized controlled trials. So um, the options are, you know, after you've tried all your wonderful things, you know, position changes, different things, um, depending on who your collaborating physician is, uh, manual rotation or with forceps, um, operative birth from the occiput posterior position or a cesarean birth. Slide number 38. Um, Occiput transverse position. So most fetuses enter the maternal pelvis and occiput transverse. Left occiput transverse being the most common. Um, With progressive descent, the occiput usually rotates either anteriorly or posteriorly. Only a few remain occiput transverse at complete dilation and most then would rotate with maternal expulsion efforts slide number 39 a persistent occiput transverse fetus it's defined as occiput transverse for more than an hour in second stage there's no reliable data on the frequency of this but it is uncommon so small fetuses can birth in occiput transverse positions most fetuses are going to rotate with pushing those that don't rotate either stay in a high transverse arrest or a deep transverse arrest. So those fetuses that it feels like, boy, they should come, they should come and they just don't go anywhere. Sometimes you can feel and you feel those, you feel the, um, suture transverse and they've, they're in a deep transverse arrest. Slide number 40. Typically it's constrained to rotation by the bony pelvis. So back to our pelvimetry, it's more associated with an android or a pel- platypelloid pelvis. Remember that these are the pelvises that just don't have they they have a so we'll go through first the platypelloid, has a long occipital frontal diameter, so it the head readily adapts to that to being transverse because remember it's kind of a flat wide pelvis but it's not going to be able to rotate then so it gets down there nicely into the occiput transverse but then for that fetal head to rotate occiput anterior posterior just doesn't happen because there's not room and for an android pelvis the engage engagement occurs in the transverse position but then the rotation is impeded by, remember those encroaching spines and then also the forward inclination of the sacrum. So um, that's what keeps it from rotating. Um, it can also be associated with inadequate power from contractions and pushing to induce rotation. So assess whether this is maybe a power thing and um, more contractions are needed. Slide number 41. If fetal descent is protracted or arrested, you can suspect it. Um, The diagnosis on vaginal exam, again, the fetal sagittal suture and fontanelles are palpable in a transverse diameter, and if the occiput is on the maternal left side, then it's left occiput transverse. Um, So a little caution that anterior or posterior asyncletism can result in a misdiagnosis, of occiput transverse. These also can be fetuses that have extreme caput or molding. And this can be tricky. They've, I've been tricked many times because you feel like, um, yes, you're making descent, you're making descent. And then it's like, oh, what I feel is the caput descending, not so much the fetal head. Slide number 42. So management of persistent occiput transverse. Um, again, is it a power thing? Do you need um, stronger contractions, um, either nipple stimulation, movement, or oxytocin? And then thinking, is this really a pelvis issue, which is difficult to do prospectively, but kind of get it in the back of your mind if you have a fetus that's persistently occiput transverse. And expectant management, if there is any descent or fetal heart rate is reassuring, is the preferred method. Um... If, if subsequent intervention is required, it will be easier with a lower station. Um, and then think about your positions to facilitate rotation as if the baby was occiput posterior. Um, all right. Um, and again, January, we'll talk more about manual rotation. But just to kind of breeze through it, um, It is more of an expanded scope of practice, but it's, you know, you might end up somewhere with physicians who are comfortable in doing this and comfortable in kind of teaching you how to do it. It's more successful in Paris versus nulliparous women, um, flexing and slightly dislodging the vertex, and then you rotate to an occiput anterior between the uterine contractions, hold in place for several contractions. And then instrumental rotation, we're not going to necessarily cover it at this point. And caesarean is recommended for a high transverse arrest with adequate uterine contractions and maternal effort. Slide number 44 face and brow presentations. So the incidence of face is about 1 in 600 to 1 in 800 births. Um, brow is, depending on the study, between 1 in 500 and 1 in 4,000. So the diagnosis is made on vaginal exam, ultrasound to confirm, and again, ultrasound can be wrong, especially with the brow presentation. Um, Think about the occiput being smooth and hard, whereas the face, brow, and breech um, or extremities tend to be soft, and they're more irregular or bumpy. And if you haven't heard Lee's story from when she's in midwifery school, you need to ask her about her story because it's one of my favorites. Slide number 45. So the neck of the fetus in face or brow presentation is deflexed, or in the face it's extended backwards. So the wider head diameter that present when the neck is deflexed, it will inhibit at engagement and subsequent fetal descent. Slide number 46. So with the brow presentation, it's not as extended as much as a face presentation. Um, This can be detected by vaginal exam. Again, a lot of times with the brow, it's kind of like, what am I feeling is what you're going to think more than, oh, this is a brow. Um, It typically extends from the anterior fontanelle to the brow, but does not include the mouth or chin. So you can feel the little eyeballs, but you're not going to feel the mouth and the chin. Um, Again, it can be confirmed with ultrasound. Often it's a transitional state and further extension leads to face or flexion to occiput. So about 30% of the time, um, so in about half of the cases, it's going to um, extend or flex. 30% will convert to face, so a little bit more than the 20% that will convert to occiput. Um, So all else being equal, continue spontaneous labor with close monitoring. This might be someone to consider um, continuous fetal monitoring because, you know, it's certainly a little bit more traumatic for the fetus. And just because you know that there's more of a chance of a prolonged first stage and second stage, um, something to think about. Slide number 47, um, version is not recommended with a brow presentation due to risk of perinatal mortality or uterine rupture. If it does not convert with labor, it's associated with cephalopelvic disproportionment. but a large caput can create the impression of descent, um, and so don't recommend ox- oxytocin augmentation. This is the largest diameter. Again, vertical verticomentum is a centimeter diameter on average Um, and according to the data persistent brow is not compatible with vaginal birth unless fetus is very small or it's a macerated infant. I did have one at U of M that came out and I swear it did not convert to a face presentation. It came out brow but in the chaos of the moment maybe it did come out face first and I just um mistook it, but definitely the brow was where the baby had the big amount of cap it. slide number forty eight so there's brow anterior and brow posterior, and with face, again, see the difference of what it looks like when it's with with the complete extension. Slide number fifty <coughs> excuse me. There's left and right positions with face presentation. Slide number 51. Here's the important thing to remember. With a face presentation, vaginal delivery is impossible unless the chin rotates anteriorly. So see this little fetus here? Vaginal birth of a full-time, full-term infant can't happen. It's just not possible Um and don't, tell, don't ask me exactly why that is, but it just doesn't work unless the chin rotates anteriorly. Slide number 52, again, the incidence is 1 in 600, 1 in 800. Um, some of the risk factors for face presentation is, again, if you have a fetus with anencephaly or a massive hydrocephalus or anterior neck mass, uh, cephaloparotus pelvic disproportionment, prematurity, low birth weight, or conversely, macrosomia, a contracted maternal pelvis, a platypelloid pelvis, polyhydramnios, previous cesarean birth, multiparity, and most of the time, none of these. It just happens out of the blue. Um, One that I had that was really interesting was this was a mother who'd had A baby, this was early in my midwifery practice, she'd had a baby, her boyfriend thought she was too loose vaginally, so she went to some general surgeon in the Battle Creek area who did a quote-unquote repair, um, never did a pregnancy test, she was actually pregnant again. So she came to us and um, he had said she should have a cesarean, but there was no indication for a cesarean and my consulting physician said, nope. So that was a baby that was vertex and it must have been a deflect sort of vertex, but as that head came down, all of a sudden it was a face presentation. I was a fairly new midwife and I panicked. I could not tell what it was at first and I thought, oh man, this baby's breech. But I often now think that, you know, it was that tightened perineum that he had sewn back together that kind of when the fetus hit that, it flipped it into a face presentation. But that's my story of my first face presentation. And I will admit, I panicked. Baby was fine. Everything was fine. Slide 53. Um, Diagnosis usually occurs during a vaginal examination in labor. Um, Orbital ridges are diagnostic. Um, Approximately 60% are mentum anterior, 26% mentum posterior, and 15% mentum transverse. And most will all convert to mentum anterior. Um, Again, the head is extended and the chin is what's leading. And descent will be slower than usual. Um, Again, the mentum must be anterior to deliver. Careful assessment of labor progress. Closely monitor with external fetal monitoring continuously. For obvious reasons, don't use a fetal scalp electrode. Um, Oxytocin augmentation may be used if indicated and fetal heart rate is reassuring. Um, You don't do any sort of manual rotation or conversions as there's a risk for maternal death from uterine rupture, needle-needle asphyxia secondary to cord prolapse or neonatal neurologic sequelae from cervical spine trauma, which all sounds absolutely dreadful. Slide number 54. Um, So, mentum anterior, 70% will birth spontaneously. Um, Internal rotation may occur late in labor when face is well applied to the pelvic floor. So if you think that it's mentum posterior early on, Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that the baby is not going to rotate to mentum anterior. And the head is born by flexion around the pubic bone. Then it extends, the neck untwists to restitute, and then head externally rotates. Slide number 55. Um, Some neonatal outcomes with a mentum anterior birth. Significant facial edema with skull molding. It usually resolves within 24 to 28 hours. Um, if the if the baby needs resuscitation, you can have some difficulty in ventilation um, due to the tracheal and laryngeal trauma and edema. So this is a case where I would call in PEDS. You want equipment and personnel to perform endotracheal intubation if it should need to be done. Um, And again, facial trauma and spinal cord injury with version or extraction and mid-forceps rotation. So these babies do fine, but you don't want to mess with them as far as any sort of manual rotation or um, instrumental birth. So the remaining slides are all just some um, slides of a face presentation birth. So... um, I'm going to stop talking at this point and let you go through those on your own. I hope this has been helpful and um, that you've learned something.